welcome to Dictator, episode 2.6, The Roaring Seventies. Last time, we focused on the start of Ceausescu's reign as the ruler of Romania, where he changed the name of the country and the party, looked for alternative allies other than the Soviet Union, he spoke out against the Soviet reaction to the Prague Spring, and he reached out to the West. He made a trip to the Far East that would change his worldview, which in turn ended up with a fundamental change of Romanian society. Let's take a look at some of this. Within Romania, Ceausescu continued to push heavy industry and the sectors which supported it as the number one economic priority for the country. His newfound favored nation status from the United States and good relations with many nations on both sides of the Iron Curtain meant that Ceausescu could leverage this goodwill to help reach his goals. He started to send out trade representatives to Romanian diplomatic missions abroad, especially to the West. And I don't mean just a few trade representatives, I mean hundreds. These representatives had diplomatic immunity and were just spies under a different name. Ceausescu ordered between five and six hundred spies from his Foreign Intelligence Service, also known as the DIE, to go to the United States alone, specifically to acquire U.S. technology. Their official job was to research and purchase foreign industrial equipment, but when they weren't doing that, they were straight up stealing technology. And you can bet that he sent hundreds throughout Western Europe as well, from London to West Berlin. From tractors to steel mills to fishing boats, if it could be of use to Romania, then the Romanians would do what they could to get their hands on it. But the focus was on heavy industry and high technology. Of particular interest was any kind of electronic components that Romania couldn't produce itself. Think the brains for guided missiles, fighter aircraft fire control systems, and even space-related equipment. Sometimes the Soviet Union would ask Ceausescu to acquire certain technologies on their behalf. And sometimes Ceausescu himself was the one doing the tasking. Either way, his spies were pretty darn effective, and not just in America. In France and Germany, Ceausescu was able to use his spies to great effect. In the oil sector, Romania remained one of the largest producers in Europe. But by 1975, Romania was purchasing Western technology and hiring American companies to install them in Romania's first offshore drilling rig in the Black Sea. Romania was able to sell respectable quantities of oil on the world market, which helped fund Ceausescu's drive to change Romania. But Romania is no Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, or Libya. Oil wasn't destined to be a huge moneymaker for the country, although most of its neighbors didn't even have the modest amounts of oil that Romania had. Plus, Romania's oil wells were drying up, and new exploration wasn't finding promising new deposits. Instead of being an energy powerhouse, Romania was destined to be a small player on the world market. I imagine, though, that if Romania had the reserves like Venezuela or Saudi Arabia, then Ceausescu would have even been more bold in his attempts at worldwide diplomacy. Plus, he would have had like an unending stream of money to do anything that he wanted to do. Romania also started domestic production of its own line of automobiles, Dacia. Of course, he named the car after the ancient name for Romania, and he thought that would be a hit. Um, but they were really just copies of Renault cars produced under license. Nonetheless, Dacia cars were destined to be a worldwide phenomenon with superstars from all over the world lining up to get their hands on the best new cars on the road. Nah, just kidding. 
but there was a domestic market and even an export market for the cars. The nicest models were always reserved for the Communist Party elite, but an average Romanian would eventually hope to get their hands on one. Most people in Ceausescu's Romania could not afford a car, but you could request to be put on a waiting list and the government would eventually provide you with one. I say eventually because this process was known to take up to 10 years. One policy that had started under Gheorghe Dej, but which expanded under Ceausescu, was free transport to and from work. With so many Romanians now working in big factories or collective farms, the government often provided buses to take people to and from work every day. It's quite different from America, where public transport was being dismantled during this period to make way for the American car obsession. As the 70s rolled on, the country started to experience the need for more electric power to supply its big industrial projects, and to keep the lights on in people's homes. To do this, Ceausescu decided to bring Romania into the nuclear age. It was decided that Romania would build a nuclear power plant between Bucharest and Constantia at a place called Chernovoda, which means black water in all the Slavic languages. Now, Soviet satellite states were often fitted with nuclear power plants as a way for the Soviet Union to quote-unquote provide for partner nations, but it was also a way for the Soviets to make some cold hard cash to fund their own domestic economies. Bulgaria set up a nuclear power plant on the Danube around this time. Czechoslovakia had Soviet-built plants, as did East Germany. So when the time came for Romania to join the nuclear club, Ceausescu went ahead and decided on a Canadian design. Wait, what? That's right. Romania did not choose to go with the Soviet-built reactor, but with a Canadian plant. In 1978, Atomic Energy of Canada Limited won the tender to build Romania's step into the nuclear age. The design for the plant was to eventually build four reactors to be put online starting in 1986. Ceausescu made a speech about how cool this was, and he mistakenly mentioned a fifth reactor. The officials working on the issue were horrified, but so afraid of Ceausescu that they started drawing up plans for a fifth reactor. I guess it wasn't a thing for Ceausescu to go back and admit he had misspoken, but it's also not the West. In other sectors, Ceausescu ordered all manner of factories to be built to drive the engine of the Romanian economy. Munitions factories were built to make arms, including Romanian-licensed AK-47 models, which I understand are of pretty decent quality compared to some of the other knockoffs. In the 1970s, Romanian trade representatives stole West German tank plants. Teaming up with Libya, the Romanians built a copy of a German tank, which they named after Ceausescu and Gaddafi, the Chega. Ceausescu, upon seeing the tank, ordered production to start immediately. Not for Romania's military, mind you, but for the international export to Libya and other customers. I did some looking, though, and I can't find evidence that the thing was actually built. But Ceausescu didn't want just tanks and AKs. In his mind, real military powers could build their own aircraft. Romania started producing small airplanes and helicopters, sometimes with other Eastern Bloc countries like Yugoslavia. When not designing their own stuff, Ceausescu had these companies produce aircraft that were essentially copies of French helicopters and airplanes. If you can't make something better, just copy it, right? Of course, when your country has a growing population, you always have to build new places for these people to live. But in the 1970s, Ceausescu upped his country's apartment building campaign by a lot. Villagers were displaced and moved into the cities uh, 
and not quite so shiny, but very new apartment blocks. Whole historic neighborhoods were knocked down to make way for these massive apartment buildings, which took away any charm those neighborhoods might have and turned them into nearly carbon copies of every other part of whatever city you just got moved into. Plus, as the average citizen didn't get a choice in all this, um, you find a lot of people getting literally forced uh, pretty much at gunpoint out of their houses. When the builders came to knock your house down, you were moved into an apartment that probably didn't suit your needs, but you know, there wasn't a customer complaint department, so what are you going to do about it? If you aren't familiar with what a communist block apartment is, then let me describe one for you. They're anywhere from three stories high to massive 16 and 20 story skyscrapers. Often they were made from just concrete panels stuck to a concrete or steel frame. Their exterior is most often stuccoed and painted with an uninspiring faded color such as dull yellow, off-white, or just gray. Most of them have multiple entrances, so your address, if you lived at one, would have to include that extra little bit, entrance A, entrance B, uh, side entrance Z, whatever. Inside, the foyers are dimly lit with ugly concrete floors and the same ugly yellow paint from the outside of the walls. In Ceausescu's day, just as often as not, you'd see a painting of the great leader on one of the walls in the foyer. And you probably had one in your house. Elevators were often installed in these buildings, especially if they got above four stories. No guarantees they'd work, though. Inside, apartments could be as small as a single room that functioned as a living room, sleeping, and cooking area. Sometimes you could find apartments with a bedroom or two, a small kitchen, and even a balcony. In the Soviet Union, these apartment buildings might have even shared kitchens and bathrooms with whole floors. But in Romania, most had their own bathrooms, at least. Once you moved in, you were free to furnish it and remodel it how you liked. But remember, consumer goods in Romania were largely lacking and hard to come by. If you had connections, you could use them to get remodeling supplies. You could get help doing the work and maybe even a hookup with furniture. If you were a high communist party official, you had these connections pretty much by default. The kind of uh, who you know culture all over the communist world uh, was thriving in Romania and was necessarily for survival. Just as often as not, people who worked in the same factories would get assigned apartments in the same building, so you were bound to know someone. But the economy kept growing throughout the 1970s. The Ceausescu regime could boast of economic figures that would be the envy of any state, not just a communist one. Ceausescu himself delighted in his country's achievements, but all wasn't well. Ceausescu wasn't an economist, and apparently he didn't listen to the ones that he had in his employ. The Romanian economy in the late 1970s was on the road to disaster and stagnation, although the dear leader Ceausescu couldn't see it himself. Romania had taken on huge loans from foreign governments and institutions like the International Monetary Fund to finance all the growth in these sectors of the economy. The hope was that these loans would finance more growth, which would lead to these industries producing products that could be sold abroad for cash and thus finance themselves. In reality, Ceausescu's poor management at the top level and poor management at pretty much every level below that meant that none of these industries was run particularly well. 
The emphasis on heavy industry meant that agriculture once again took a back seat, as did other industries which, although not directly tied to heavy industry, do play a role in society. Because agriculture was neglected, it started performing more poorly as the years went on. Shortages were everywhere of both raw material and energy, and even labor. All of these were going to build things like tanks and apartment blocks and oil rigs and all, all these industries. That's what they were designed to do. And next time we'll take a look at the longer term effects of this economic mismanagement. But for now, um, a few things are looking okay for Ceausescu, but the writing's on the wall. His insistence on heavy industries was a boon, of course, for those sectors. If you had the right education, and probably more importantly, the right connections, you could easily get a job in that field. The pay would never be great for most, but it never was in Romania, and one could reasonably expect to improve their chances of moving up the hierarchy by, hierarchy by joining the Communist Party. Party membership almost universally meant better access to goods, more privileges, nicer apartments, and a stepping stone up the ladder in your chosen field. Romania would eventually boast the highest party membership numbers when compared to population. In 1965, 1 1.4 million Romanians were party members. By the end of Ceausescu's reign in 1989, almost 4 million Romanians would be members. This was second in number only to the Soviet Union, and highest by percentage of population total. But this is part of the problem in Ceausescu's Romania. You had to use connections to get anywhere. You had to join the party. But you didn't need to be good at your job to use those connections to get a better job with more responsibilities. And you probably weren't going to be good at that job either. A classic example might be a construction foreman. If the foreman could get his current project built under budget and ahead of schedule, he could then use his connections in the local party to get himself a higher profile and a better paying project. What you're not seeing is how he built his project so quickly and so cheaply. And that's because he would build whatever using the bare minimum of materials while probably selling off or giving away the materials he was supposed to be using for the project. Less wooden boards and nails in those boards meant work faster. The foreman gets the project done, and on paper he looks great. But the integrity of the structure is now in danger, and building codes aren't really a thing in Ceausescu's Romania. I mean, I'm sure they existed, but they probably weren't ever enforced. And this is how business was done all over the place. Factories, farms, construction companies, everywhere. Corruption and poor management were the order of the day. Now say you're an honest factory worker who knows his boss is cooking the books. Who are you going to report him to? The local police are basically there for traffic stops. The securitate is way too scary to even think about approaching. You can't go to your boss's boss because in all likelihood he's been doing the same thing. And if they're a party member, then they have the protection of the party. It's really a disaster waiting to happen. But in a country where pay was low, consumer goods were hard to find, and the only way to, head, the only way to get ahead was to lie and cheat, what else are you going to do? Now multiply this by the size of a whole economy. And as you might imagine, even if economic numbers were good in the 1970s, Ceausescu's Romania was heading for disaster. And this corruption problem? It ain't getting any better. Romania heads into some major economic roadblocks down the road and horrible missteps. Corruption becomes the only way you can actually get any of the day-to-day -day essentials. 
and not to jump around, for during the 70s, the Ceausescu couple started down the path to military absolutism, similar to their Chinese and North Korean allies. To go with that, they had frequent mass events full of dancing and singing and all kinds of performances. And these things, modeled after North Korea's mass celebrations, involved hundreds and thousands of people at a time. Meticulously choreographed, this mass of people would perform in stadiums for the ruling couple, and attendance was mandatory for party officials. Tons of work, tons of money, got pumped into each event, all because Nikolai loved to see people falling over themselves just to praise the dear leader. And as the economy slowed down, and Romanians start to go cold and hungry in the 80s, these shows celebrating the glory of Romania and its magnificent leader really start to ring hollow. I'll try to link a video in one of the show notes, but they're pretty wild. Ceausescu himself seems to thoroughly enjoy the immense power he had accrued for himself. He had the final word on everything, and that included his own personal enrichment. Dozens of houses, resorts, and formal palaces were converted to his personal residences. According to one former aide, every Sunday Ceausescu would go hunting. He, by all accounts, was a terrible shot, though, and animals were often chained in place just so he could get his rocks off on shooting it. Bears, deer, and boars seemed to be his animals of choice, but he wasn't too picky. He was the ruler of a whole country and he can use any and all of that country's resources to get whatever he wanted. He was apparently a lover of a specific Moldovan white wine, which he drank almost every day. The winery that made it was forbidden to produce it for anyone but Ceausescu and his closest cronies. He had vacation complexes built all over the country to cater to him and his highest party officials. Food and drink were plentiful at them, and a black-tied waitstaff would move heaven and earth to provide for the leader and his friends. Ceausescu was reportedly an avid chess player, but also pretty bad at it. But you can't beat the leader because that meant you didn't respect him. He apparently loved to play chess not only with his ministers, but also with Elena, with whom he played most evenings. And the couple was fond of Western movies, which they watched most nights right before bed. They had movie theaters installed in pretty much all of their residences, and they regularly watched the same movies which Ceausescu himself had forbidden everyone else in the country from seeing. After the trip to East Asia, Elena started asserting herself and was soon second only to Nikolai. Her biggest love? Being awarded high degrees from the countries that the two visited together. Stories abound of Elena getting incensed if countries refused to give her an honorary degree during official state visits. She also had a penchant for purchasing vast amounts of clothing and jewelry on trips abroad. So, Ceausescu had built a state where vacation homes, cars, clothing, and jewelry were all but unattainable by the ordinary person, but in which Ceausescu and his lady were swimming. Elena's constantly growing collection of decrees portrayed an image of a highly educated state leader, but in fact, it was just face painting on a woman who got kicked out of school after 8th grade. Elena also insisted on being involved in the creation of Romanian scientific literature with hundreds of research papers written in her name. Guess how many words she actually sat down and wrote out, though? Yeah, zero. 
The Ceausescu children were also coming to, of age in the 1970s, and they lived wild lifestyles that were in stark contrast to the lives of the ordinary people. They were automatically enrolled in the best schools, they always had a security detail, new cars, and the best western clothes money could buy. The oldest son, Valentin, was surprisingly not the favorite to succeed Nikolai. Valentin finished university in Bucharest and then went to London in 1967 to continue his physics studies at Imperial College. In 1970, he married the daughter of one of Ceausescu's bitter rivals. This might have been what caused Valentin to fall out of favor, and his wife Dana was eventually exiled to Canada. Zoya Ceausescu became a mathematician, and even a decorated one, but her parents disapproved of her choice in a career and even closed down one of the institutes she worked at. The Ceausescus were also known to frequently chase off Zoya's boyfriends, or to try having them deported to foreign countries. The youngest son, Niku, was Nikolai's favored successor, but by the late 1970s, he had turned into the stereotypical playboy. He was known for drunken rampages throughout Bucharest or wherever he happened to be at the time. There's also rumors that he was into casually raping women whenever he wanted to, wherever he was. Nico was allegedly best pals with one of Saddam Hussein's sons, and supposedly the two ran up huge gambling debts in Switzerland and Monaco. But Nico was also the one who received the most grooming, even taking up some government positions. Talk about a wholesome family. Next time, we take a look at the hammer and Ceausescu's iron fist, the security and intelligence services. Not only did they spy on the West, but they also spied on other communist countries. They helped ferment rebellions all over the world, and they crushed dissent at home. When communism was supposed to bring freedom and equality to the working masses, it really just pushed the old elites out of the way and created a new elite class. This class was propped up by these intimidating spies.